Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Hover. Hover is a domain registrar that stands apart from the rest. It is simple, easy to use and understand with a valet service for your domain transfer, making it simply the best way to buy and manage your domain names. Check out Hover at hover.com pragmatic and find out just how easy it is to grab your own domain and transfer your existing domain to Hover using the coupon code PRAGMATIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stresses away today. This episode is also sponsored by ManyTrix, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit manytricks.com slash pragmatic for more information about their apps, Butler, Chemo, Leech, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, Usher, Moom, Name Mangler, and Witch. If you visit that URL, you can use the code PRAGMATIC25. That's PRAGMATIC, the word, and 25 the numbers in the shopping cart to save 25% on any ManyTrix product. We'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined again, uh, once again, by uh, my friend Seth Clifford. How are you doing, Seth? I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for coming back on. Um, I uh, Before we dive into the topic today, which is going to be privacy, um, I just want to mention once more that uh, for a few more weeks available for sale are the first and quite likely only um, Pragmatic uh, t-shirt. They're being sold through Teespring. There's a link in the show notes and this time it is in the show notes. I said it was last week but unfortunately um, it missed out uh, on the initial cut uh, but I later updated the website. So apologies if you're looking for it in the show notes and you didn't find it while it's there this week. Definitely I apologize again for that. Uh, I do realize with Teespring, if you're in outside the US, uh, shipping can be a little bit pricey. I do understand that. But unfortunately, there aren't very many um, good quality international options that I'm aware of. If you are aware of one, please let me know. I've also had a few uh, requests for a coffee mug and for a stubby holder. Let's just see how this goes first before we get too excited. Um, yeah, so I'll get back to you on those. Uh, in any case, like I said, I'm really not planning on doing this again. I'm only really doing it because people have asked uh, pretty much for the last nine months, when are you doing a shirt? And not just one, quite a few people. So <clears throat> at this point, the sales count is up to about 14. Uh, it's only been up for less, just just about a week. And um, I think that's pretty good. Uh, so I only set the minimum at 10 so that it will be made. I don't ha- expect to sell huge numbers. But if you've ever wanted a shirt, now's your chance. Uh, and uh, I'll leave the nagging there. So go grab one uh, while they're available. Okay, so um, privacy. Now, this one, as, as topics go, this one came up out of episode 42, which was uh, the e-readers uh, episode. Uh, I think it was called, hopefully they don't burn it. <sighs> Fatuous reference to burning books in the Second World War, but never mind that. Long-time listener of the show, uh, Nick Radcliffe, uh, and I had a very long email conversation back and forth, which I alluded to in the follow-up episode for episode 42, uh, regarding privacy. And I realized that some of the points that he brought up were really enough fodder for an entirely independent episode about privacy 
because privacy and, and online privacy is a is a big deal. And it's something that I guess I feel like in the last 20 years, we've gone from not trusting anything that we put put online to getting to a level of trust whereby people will even put credit card numbers online and buy stuff online, which, you know, 20 years ago when it was just becoming a possibility where people would say, oh, that's crazy. But it's like the trust has sort of been building. But then there's been a few incidents like sites have been hacked recently and I can see some of that being undone and people are starting to think more about their privacy and what it's worth. So I guess... I guess there was a time, you know, if you go back far enough, before governments, before records were kept, like, you know, people were born, we lived, we died off the grid. Well, not that there was a grid or a radar. Actually, I was going to say off the radar too, but there was no radar either. Um, and there was no government. And perhaps maybe there was a basic government, but they had no idea that people existed, like exactly who, when and where and, and so on. And there's places in the world right now where that's still the case. But I guess governments sort of we were put together to try and protect the people. Well, at least that was the idea. And they were formed to govern and, and to do that, they needed to keep track of where people were, you know, how many people were born and died, where they lived so they could plan access to amenities, figure out where to build roads, hospitals and all that sort of seemingly innocent stuff. But of course, time goes on, they want more money. Ultimately, they bring in things like income tax and then they start tracking people with social security numbers and tax file numbers, social insurance numbers. So those are like US, uh, Australia and Canada numbers and all around the world so they can track your income so they can figure out how much to tax you and you know that way then they can fund government buffets and fact-finding missions to the bahamas or something but i don't know um yeah what do they do with tax money anyway certainly not fixing that's that's an entirely different show (laughs) yeah you're right actually it is um so yes rather than go down that rat hole um but never mind so I guess the thing about the internet that scares governments and scares, scares a lot of um, people that want to have that information and to track all this information so they have some level of control is that the internet is about sharing information freely and that it can be anonymous, on anonymously shared. And part of the problem with that is that that's directly opposed to the other movement, which is, well, I want to be able to conduct business online, which therefore has to be has to have some level of privacy, but at the same time has to be very secure. So I see privacy and security as sort of very intertwined. You know, if you've got good security, then you can ensure a certain degree of privacy. So I guess we kind of need to cover a bit of both, I think, anyway. Um, all right. So I guess the thing is that a lot of companies since the internet came about have been have tried to take control of aspects of it and in some cases even infect different components of it in order to snoop in on that information. And, you know, recently that Heartbleed uh, exploitation, for example, I mean, I think the CIA knew about it for years before it became public knowledge and they were exploiting it for their own purposes of, of eavesdropping. And then, of course, there was this whole uh, PRISM thing. Has everyone forgotten about PRISM already? I mean... Seems like old news, but I mean that's a huge deal. So yeah, <laughs> I mean when that again, again, an entirely different show on its oh, own. Oh yeah, I'm not, I don't want to dive into exactly what Prism was, but I mean, uh, guy, it was uh, Snowden was the guy that broke that, if memory serves, right? And yeah, mm-hmm. he's still in seclusion, isn't he? Or has he been? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I don't know what to think. I think that's 
I don't know what to think. I, I guess uh, I suppose the ends justifies, you know, to some extent. It's 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 hard to know, but all I know is that Prism was wrong. It's just that you know, it existed, and 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 there's a lot of eavesdropping going on. And I guess ultimately, no matter how you slice it, if you treat the internet as you put something out there, it could be exploited by the wrong people. So it's best for us to just focus on what we have, where we have a choice and where we have some degree of control and how to exercise that control. Because beyond that, I mean, unless you want to pull the plug and completely go off the grid, which is the ultimate answer, um, in which case you probably won't be listening to this podcast, then oh well. Um, So I guess it's about for me, I guess it's the pragmatic choices, which are I want to be able to take advantage of the digital age and be a part of the internet and still enjoy all of those benefits. Like I want to be able to shop for some things online. I want to be able to download stuff. I want to be able to, you know, get music from Apple. But at the same time, I want to have a little bit of privacy. I don't want it to be a, I don't want them to have everything about me. If that makes yeah, sense. And, and, oh no, it absolutely does. And for me, you know, I come at this more from, I guess, a, an end user perspective where I am very selective about the types of services that I choose to use, what I choose to share with them, because I understand now, you know, we started talking, we started this conversation talking about it from, you know, kind of a a government perspective and infrastructure level. Me personally, I'm far more concerned with all of the different ways, like if we assume that we're being monitored, let's just say. I'm far more concerned with all of the ways that I don't know people are taking my data and using it for not even nefarious things, just things that I don't approve of, you know, selling the data, doing other things with it. And so that's the kind of thing that I think about on a daily basis. And when I hear security breaches and credit cards were hacked and this, you know, oh, passwords are stored in plain text, like all of these consumer level things that affect us that's the stuff that drives me up a wall. Like things like Prism and, and you know, things at that level, I guess I just assume <laughs> that those things are happening and you have to kind of make peace with it on some level, even though it is not something that we would want as, you know, internet citizens. But I think the thing that rankles me more is the the the, the whole move up to free services and giving all this stuff away without a notion of what the actual cost is. That's the thing that keeps coming back around for me. Yeah, one of the things that I always ask myself when I sign up for any service, free or paid, is what exactly do you need X, Y, and Z for? You know, ones that particularly get me, and maybe we should sort of, before we go any further, just just talk about what private data, what I'm talking about. Like when we say privacy, what are we talking about? Just break it down real simple. And that is- Sure, yeah. yeah. So let's start with obviously our name, but not just our name, our full name. So, um, you know, do they really need to know what my middle name is? Probably not. You know, do they even know? have to know what my first name is? Can, is an initial good enough? Surely that's good enough, you know? So what about my date of birth? What are they going to do? Send me a birthday card? Well, no, they're probably not. Oh, well, they, so they need to know my age for age verification purposes. Well, I could just fudge that. So what's the point of a date of birth exactly? I don't... You know, and date of birth is often used for unlocking information on uh, bank accounts as proof of identification. So, date of birth is a, you know, is is a very very dangerous thing to have leaked out there. I think. 
Um, physical address is another good one. Why do they need my physical address if they're never going to ship me anything? You know, right. it's like that comes up time and again. And a lot of the time when that comes up, it's because uh, I'm signing up for an account that requires a credit card. So, so the credit card companies, a lot of them as verification will ask you to enter your physical address to verify that your credit card is in fact yours and valid. Which Yeah, your, your billing address, right. Yeah, exactly. Which I kind of get, but at the same time, if that's the only point, it seems it seems a bit wrong that, you know, shouldn't I give that to the bank and not to this third-party website that God knows what they're going to do with that information? I don't understand yeah. why they need it. So, you know, uh, sometimes um, if, any, if they ever ask for things like identification card numbers, things like a driver's license number, that's just wrong. Admittedly, I can't think of too many sites, although there's one I'll talk about later that did. Uh, health insurance numbers, anything official like that. I mean, that's, that's nothing. None of the, no online services I can think of unless they're government-based, could ever want anything like that. But Yeah, yeah. Um, phone numbers, that's another one. Um, although, admittedly, phone numbers aren't necessarily... They're more of a nuisance thing, I think. Someone gets a hold of your, your number, they can they can text you stuff. But with things like like iMessage and with um, you know, push notifications and stuff like that, it's it's become a lot easier. You don't need a, I don't need a mobile phone number anymore to annoy people on their, on their smartphones. <laughs> right. So... Um, other ones that are a little bit less tangible are things like uh, the company you work for, the company's address, uh, different avenues to gather more information about you, that sort of thing. So, would you, is there anything you'd have to, uh, you'd add to that list? No, I think that I think that pretty much covers it for the purposes of the discussion. The yeah. one thing I would add is that there are there are legitimate reasons for wanting to understand who your users are. If you want to build a better product, if you want to serve your user base better, it helps to know who's using it, where they are, what they're looking for, you know, maybe, you know, age demographics to a certain degree, but not the birth month and day and year. There are probably tons and tons and tons of companies who ask for bits of information like this because they really do want to just take it and, you know, use it anonymously and just apply it against what they're building. Like I, I fully believe that a lot of places want to do that. And this is just the, you know, the most straightforward way of doing it. But <laughs> there are so many more that only want that information so that they can market to you, track you, watch other activities that they really have no business being, you know, being in the loop for. And that's the thing that really gets under my skin. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's good you raised that because one of the things that I've, I okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm not a marketing person. I, I get that if I tell you I'm in the age bracket, eighteen to you know, twenty four, then I suppose that statistically I might be more interested in certain kinds of products. But you know, if it comes to things like, um, I don't know, like a, a, a crib, a cot, a, or something for a baby. You know, and I guess I'm bringing that up because of your, your current situation. But, uh, but I guess the thing is that that's not necessarily connected to my age, you know, because right. I, I could have a young family or I could wait till I was middle-aged or a little bit older before I, have, before I have a family. I could have had one marriage and I'm on my second marriage and I'm a, I'm 50 years old and I want to have a start my second family. I mean, there's all sorts of variables in there. You know, it's not age-related. So, it's like, I don't know. I guess... You know, how, how many children you have 
um, if you have any children, I guess that's all you know interesting stuff. But if you're signing up for an email address, it's like that's very survey data like. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not. Yep. I don't know. I guess, I don't know, I, I guess I always wondered just how effective that information would be, just an age, you know, based on a date of birth, just how effective is that at really at targeting advertising? I think it it can't be as, there's got to be some value to it, but I can't imagine it's a heck of a lot of value. Things like Google have, mark, Google have cornered this this idea of, of gathering all this information, every single search term that you put in, you know, a massive database of information about you. And to target ads, that's far more valuable than just a few scraps, I would have thought. Yeah, I guess if you're asking someone to provide it kind of as a as a means of fleshing out a profile, and that's, you know, there's no other way for you to gather input or data from them, then you kind of take what you can get and and assess, you know, whatever value you can from it. Obviously, the stuff that Google does is far more detailed and far more sweeping, but it's also more accurate. And that's, you know, Google is one of those things that I, I am very conflicted about because on one hand, the, the technologist in me is like, this is, you know, this is amazing. This is that this can happen, that, that a company can do this and learn about me and then bring me more relevant content and tailor my activities in such a way that it streamlines my day. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't really think anybody needs to know that much about me. And depending on the week, I, I'm either very bullish on it or I'm very bearish on it. And I don't, it it go it's, it's a pendulum. It swings back and forth and yeah. it's dependent on a, a heck of a lot of factors. Yeah. No, you, that, that's true. I, I feel very cautiously, I don't know what the quite right way of putting it is. Yeah. With with respect to Google, I'm I'm cautiously concerned, I suppose. And sometimes it does freak me out when I start typing in something and it's like it's reading my mind. And you know, sometimes then I'll switch to DuckDuckGo or something else because it freaks me out. Right. Um, I'm quite serious when I say that. It does freak me out sometimes. And I've made a conscious effort to move away from uh, from Google's, uh, from Gmail. So I, I typically don't use Gmail anymore. But you know, it's unfortunately it's one of those things that you can't really get away from it because technically, because you know the 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 engineer in me, I I think about this. It's like, well, what's stopping Apple or what's stopping Microsoft apart from them saying, oh, we wouldn't do that? What's actually stopping them from doing it? And the answer mm-hmm. is nothing. If I put a search term into their service and their service spits back a result. Can they cache what I've asked for? Of course they can, you know? And I yeah. can't, I have no guarantee that they won't. So does that mean I stop using search engines altogether? Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, this is the thing about Google though, is that, you know, they're, they're smart enough to know that if you do nothing and you just, you know, get in your, in your web browser of choice, go to google.com and type in a search term, you type in enough search terms from that IP address, that route, they're going to start to build a profile and if they can attach your name to that profile, they'll flag it as you and it'll follow you around. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's one of those things that if you don't log in as yourself on a Gmail account, and I don't log in on Gmail or Google accounts, I should say, these days they call it, I don't log into my Google account ever anymore. 
uh, and if I go to a stranger's computer on a completely different place, I will get different search term, search results because, of course, it's not it can't follow my profile. And I've been using Google search long enough to tell the difference between, oh, yeah, okay, it knows it's me and, oh, no, it has no idea that it's me in the search results. Yeah. We should probably... We should probably figure out what the the silos of this conversation are going to be. I think Google needs to be one of them. I think Facebook needs to be one of them. Yeah. I think probably something like Amazon needs to be one of them because they all collect data in different ways for different purposes, and I feel very, very different about each one of them. Okay. But you know, I, we don't have to limit it to those. Those are just three that come to mind, sure. and you know, those different kinds of trade offs that we make, mm-hmm. what okay. they offer. Well, I guess the thing is that from a, from a privacy point of view, if you are concerned about Google tracking the who you are rather than the what you search for, I mean, if you're going to call yourself, you know, Bob the Builder and, you know, create Bob the Builder <laughs> at gmail.com, go for your life. I'm actually sure someone's already done that, but never mind. Probably not the real Bob. But anyway, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, anyway, too much kids TV. I'm going to blame that. Anyhow, <laughs> it's on in the room. You can't avoid it. <sighs> Okay, anyway, I get sidetracked easily sometimes. So, yeah, um, if you do create a false name and you do all your searching under that account to get sort of pseudo benefits and you don't mind say, saying to your friends, yeah, just email me at bobthebuilder at gmail.com, that's perfectly okay, then that's fine. Um, you know, but it'll still connect all that information with you so long as you never ever put in your actual name in any way to connect you to that profile. Although Google will build a profile, they think it's a profile of Bob the Builder and they'll have no idea it's you personally. So maybe that's okay. Maybe that's the line that you draw and maybe that's perfectly fine. So yeah, in which case you can still enjoy all the benefits that Google has to offer. But all it really does take is a, is a slip and, and Google will, will they'll pounce on it. They'll have the information that they need to connect the dots if they're smart enough and you know, they've been doing it long enough. I'm sure they are. But the thing is that where it's different, I guess, and I'm not talking about Google Plus because does anyone use Google Plus? I don't know. I um, think plenty of people use it. I, I personally don't use it. It really isn't my th- kind of thing. I think that people use it because it's just a Google account thing. It's like, you know, you signed up for a Google account, so you get Google Plus. Oh, and then they, they push it in Gmail and they push it, you know, all the, as much as they can get away with. But but I guess I'm thinking now more of, you mentioned Facebook, and of course, Twitter is also part of this, where you voluntarily yeah. post information about what you're doing, what's going on in your life. It's not a search thing. It's like a, having breakfast. Well, okay, I don't do that often, but I mean, sometimes... People. maybe that's what Instagram's for but here's a photo of my breakfast um, I don't get that anyway alright so but yeah so Facebook at least make some vague attempt to keep your your posts private if you want to keep them private but they keep messing with their privacy settings so it's almost like they don't want your information to be private but they want it to look like they want your information to be private you said you had some you said you had some thoughts about this so <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, for, from a from a very high level, I feel like there's there's three different ways, you know, based on the three different companies that I mentioned that yep. you know, people are using data, right? Google is Google is taking everything that you can possibly give it to build better search results and serve better ads and do and I'm using the word better because I'm kind of embodying that ideal for for these purposes that this is this is what they want to do. They want to make everything more relevant to you. 
I I have a Google account. I don't really sign into it all that often because even though I've heard from friends that when you sign in, your search results are better, I don't know that I want better results. I want results. I want to do a search and, you know, run a query on a term and 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 have returned to me what the internet thinks I'm looking for. Like I don't care that Google knows I've searched for, you know, whatever MacBook Pros 150 times and so they're going to surface MacBook Pro stuff more. If the thing I'm looking for is something else, that to me in my mind could get in the way of what I'm looking for and I this is totally a personal thing. With Facebook, I feel like the more you put into Facebook, like what what are you getting out of it apart from the social interaction? Like Google at least has a value if you look at it in that perspective. Facebook, if you look at your wall, and I I left Facebook several months ago because I it was rather unceremonious, but I just wasn't really using it and decided it didn't need to be in my life anymore. But if you look at your typical, you know, log in, look at your wall, so much of it is just ads. And your content that you're looking for, your friends' content, photos, whatever it is that you're there to view, is just completely buried among all this other stuff. And Facebook's ads have never been relevant to me. And that could be because I never really put a lot into it, but it just never seemed to be, I was not deriving any kind of value from it the way that I could see someone deriving value from Google services. So, and, and, like you said, Facebook changes their privacy settings and they really want everything to be public. And they have this philosophy of, well, if everything is kind of public, then we can all communicate better and do these things better. But that seems kind of thin to me, you know, just based on the stuff that the company does and just, you know, the way that they handle things that they've traditionally done a lot of backpedaling when it comes to privacy concerns and things like that. And that to me, you can look at it for a little while as, you know, hopeful naivete, like, well, they just want these things to be better. They want a better internet. They're, you know, they're a younger company. These are, the, these are their goals. These are their objectives. So yeah, they're going to make mistakes and they'll, they'll kind of go back on them and everything will be fine. But I feel like at this point now, when there are, things that seem weird about Facebook or, you know, the, the amount of data that you put into it, I feel like they ought to know better. And again, I'm not using it anymore. So I could be woefully out of the loop and they could be way better at privacy. But my my feeling is that it's, it's not going to get a whole lot better because they benefit from that way more than you do. Like the, the trade-off is, is skewed in their favor. Yes. Totally agree. See, the thing is, I guess, with Facebook is it's all based around uh, the a reality. Like, is in you are who you say you are. There's no real push on Facebook for anonymity. There's no... It's all about you connecting with your friends, which requires that you have your name, your face, your information. Yeah. And, and that is inevitably is the premise. Now, you compare and contrast that with Twitter... And Twitter reminds me a lot more of IRC of, of old. I mean, IRC is still around, but you know what I mean? Back when IRC was the way you would, you would chat and communicate with people and so on. 
It's just that it's like a public IRC. Anyone can look at it. And there's, they make no bones about it. You know, there is no privacy. There just isn't. You can enable a private option, but it severely limits a lot of the features. Like you can't retweet private accounts and you can't just become, like you can't just follow their account. You need to get their permission and everything. And, you know, there's, Twitter is very upfront about it, whereas Facebook isn't. And either way you slice it, you're putting information into a third-party server, which means you're trusting them. And I guess for me, the, the privacy angle to be had is more about, for, for this whole privacy discussion, is about who gets access to your private data. I'm handing over my private data. There's an expectation as to how that data is going to be used or better, better still, who I'm giving it to. The problem for me is not necessarily the who I'm giving it to, although sometimes with Google and Facebook and Twitter, I do wonder, um, more so Facebook and Google. I'm giving you this information. Do I trust that that's where it stops? You know, Or is it going to be used for something else that I'm not aware of? So I know that Google are going to use my information to give me better, more tailored search results. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It just it sometimes it's just creepy, like I said. But with Facebook, you know, honestly, I, I don't see much of an advantage to Facebook. I'm I'm like you, and if I if my wife and like two or three other of my friends that are only on Facebook that I want to see what's going on with or I want to you know participate with online, they're not on Twitter, and there's no other social way of interacting. So beyond iMessage, you know, Facebook has become a method by which I stay in touch with a certain subset of my friends and family. And it works for them. But honestly, if not for that, I wouldn't use it because the ads are terrible. But, you know, with Twitter, I made a decision uh, when I joined up to use my real name. I didn't have to, but I made a choice because um, I used to go around calling myself uh, Apple Convert uh, back in the forums on the Australian Macworld many years ago. And then when I started Tech Distortion, I started out writing under the same um, same moniker for a while. But then I thought to myself, if I'm going to be, you know, if I, if I ever want to go and build beyond just being a, a pseudonym, I, 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 I need to present my real face and my real name. So I decided to do that. And along with doing that publicly comes a certain degree of risk. And I guess that's also an element of this privacy thing is if you're going to put your name out there, then you're going to get more attention and you're going to get um, become more of a target potentially. And I guess that's one of the trade-offs and one of the risks. When you're using Twitter, there's nothing stopping you. You can call yourself whatever you like. Um, you know, like uh, Counter Notions is a very popular example in our little tech bubble of someone, uh, Contra or whatever he calls himself. Um, and, you know, no one knows who he is or rather, you know, I think Guy English knows who he is, but I don't know. Do you know who he is? <laughs> no, 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 I don't. Anyway, well, not really the point, but I guess, so, I mean, you would say that uh, Mr. Counter Notions uh, is in fact uh, you know, exercising his right to privacy. So, if it's a he even, actually, come to think of it, I don't know. So, anyway, all right. So, to me, the privacy is about the trust aspect and Facebook has done so many things wrong to ruin that trust with their changes to their privacy policy. And like you said, their, their oh, yeah, sorry about that kind of attitude. We, we really didn't think about it. It's like, oh, we were, it was just an accident. We accidentally just opened all your information up to everybody and you didn't have time to set it so that you couldn't be, you know, so it was private. And it's like, well, mm, 
So, but they do it too often. They've burned all of their goodwill. And this is the this is the thing. So to me, it's breach of trust. Information I'm going to send from one person to another. I'm going to publish it on Facebook. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. Let, let's say it's Apple and I'm trying to, uh, and I'm filling in credit card information or date of birth or any of that sort of stuff. It doesn't really matter so much as the exactly who. It's a matter of, I expect this information to, to, to stay with between us. But the problem with that is, of course, there's the breach of trust whereby the person hoarding the data, the, ser- the person that runs the server that keeps your data, will they keep it safe? Can they keep it safe? And then, of course, there's the possibility of it being intercepted in transit between your, your place and theirs. And, of course, there's you know your end of it getting infected by so your computer. So, like in, intrusion at the source, like your computer, malware, viruses, whatever, um, you know, that sort of thing. And people say, oh, I've got a Mac. You don't have to worry about that. But, well, I don't know. Keeping your system up to date and every computer on your home network is always good advice. I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I'm just trying to get to this to this point where if you're going to put information about yourself out there onto the internet in any way and you're concerned about it being intercepted, you know, start at home and make sure that you've got, um, you know, some degree of uh, antivirus on your computer if it's not a Mac especially, but if it even if it is a Mac, it's worth considering and keep your system up to date. So if there's an update, just make sure you've got your security updates up to date, that's all. And on every computer on your home network. But the next thing is, who do you trust on the server side of things? And one of the things that's been going around just uh, recently within our circles is whether or not you go SSL on everything, whether or not you encrypt uh, on your website. That's something I thought you might be uh, might be interested in just just discussing briefly. Your thoughts on uh, on that, whether you should or shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, we we certainly can. I there was a pretty good discussion on ATP about it. I'm sure that's you know where a lot of us started to think about it in detail. Sure. And you know, it's one of those things. I'm probably not even the right person to ask about this in terms of technical aspects, but. For for reasons, for the obvious reasons, like if you know if you do SSL, you can avoid ad injections and things like that. There's there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense, and I think if if we as a culture are serious about maintaining a level of you know not personal protection but personal awareness, I can see tremendous value in that. It's funny. My mind is jumping all over the place because I'm now thinking about the Verizon, you know, the wireless super cookie thing and uh-huh. how that how that's getting handled and we'll totally be getting ahead of ourselves because that's something also that I want to talk about because it's nauseating. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well. In, t- in, t- in terms of just, you know, your your SSL thing, I, I think it's it's probably one of those things that makes sense. Is it feasible to do in a short time frame? No, of course not. Is it the kind of thing that we should champion? I guess because it it is achievable and it probably ultimately benefits users the most. And I'm a big believer in you know being being a user, being a person who lives in technology. I want the best for me and my family and the people that I know. So it's it's something that. Uh, admittedly, like I said, I, I I really am not familiar with the full technical underpinnings and 
what it would take to do it. But uh, yeah, at a at a very you know at a surface level, it seems like the right thing to do. It seems like now is a good time to start talking about it and start that ball rolling, given all of the things that are happening. Okay, cool. Well, look, um, before I do, I just want to do a brief discussion of the basics of SSL, what it is and why, why it matters. But before I do, I um, would like to talk uh, about um, our first sponsor and new sponsor and have been a very big fan of these guys for a long time. And, uh, and they are Hover. Now, Hover is a domain registrar that stands apart from the rest. Owning and controlling your own domain is critical if you're developing an app, writing a blog, running a business, a project, wanting to keep the same email address for life even, you know, or, or just having a presence on the web at all. Yeah, you know, A domain is the single best way for other people to find you and the best way to buy and manage domain names is with Hover. If you don't currently have a domain name, Hover can help you find the perfect one. Hover supports a huge list of TLDs and their domain search is truly amazing. You type in your best idea and it'll tell you not only whether that domain's available, but it'll suggest dozens of close matches that might be just as good or even better than your original suggestion. Sometimes people sign up for different hosting services and they offer a free domain name as part of the deal, but read the fine print because sometimes they'll charge a mint to transfer that domain out when you want to leave for whatever reason and you could end up losing it. Keeping control of your domain using a service like Hover where that's their bread and butter, it puts you in control and in as little as five minutes, you can be up and running with your own domain. Now, Hover's tools are so easy to use and follow that most people won't need any help getting set up. But if you do, their support team is always available to help you out. They're famous for their no wait, no hold, no transfer, phone service, no kidding. A real living human being will help you. Now, Hover, they don't try to upsell you on every little detail. Things like who is privacy that everyone should have. It's just included. There's no flashy ads, no pushy BS. In short, it's actually pleasant to use, which is, for a domain registrar, in my experience anyway, is a rare thing. I know that that's all wonderful and everything, but Hover also offer bulk discounts for 10 domains and up, so the more domains you have with them, the cheaper it gets. That's a bonus. They also have a reliable email service and you can get a terabyte of storage space if you want it. They even offer email forwarding for as little as $5 a year. Now, finally, the thing that I think that brings so many people across to Hover that have existing domains, it's their valet transfer service and it's free. All you're going to do is point Hover in the right direction with your existing domain and registrar information and they'll take care of everything. You don't have to worry about messing it up. They do it all the time. So it's going to go a lot more smoothly than if you've only done it once every few years. So, I mean, and those are one of many reasons why I moved my domains there years ago and why they're still at Hover and that's where they're staying. So anyway, check out Hover at hover.com slash pragmatic and find out just how easy it is to grab your own domain or transfer your existing domain to Hover using the coupon code pragmatic to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stresses away today. Thank you so much to Hover for sponsoring Pragmatic. So SSL, I don't want to go into too much of the technical whys and so on because I think it's sort of beyond the scope of this. But just just basically, the idea is that it's it's the mechanism by which you, you can encrypt a one of several methods by which one of the more popular methods you can encrypt data transactions between your, com- your computer and a server computer. It's based on a public key and a private key that are then combined to create a session key at the commencement of communications. To get these, you generate the public and private key on your own server, and then you pass that 
as a, it's a certificate signing request or CSR for short. And you can send that to a certificate authority and they will then send you back a valid certificate based on that information. You serve up the public certificate, browse checks it against the trusted servers in the list and says, yes, your certificate is valid, it's current, it belongs to the site it's being served from and it's certified by this authority and we know they aren't dodgy or rather we think they aren't dodgy. They're probably not dodgy. So they're on the, the not dodgy list of CAs. Anyway, uh, each direction of data is encrypted by its partner and it creates a session key for the duration of that communication. So it's all, all nicely encrypted. So in other words, you know, the, in one direction, it, uh, it gets the... Anyway, the point is that the keys are only sent to the creation of the connection and then it goes based on the session keys at that point. So you really only get a very narrow window if you want to sniff on it at the beginning of communications and that's one of the key things about it anyway. Everything, once it's encrypted, is, is essentially is private and cracking that encryption on the, on the duration of the data transaction is extremely uh, difficult. Anyway, but the bottom line is that um, there's a choice quote. Uh, <laughs> there's a choice quote about this uh, with with regards to phishing attacks, and uh, phishing attacks, of course, are personating a server. So people think you're going to Apple.com, but you're actually not. You're going to John's dodgy Apple.com, and you just don't know it. And um, the whole thing is that the whole uh, certificate authority and you know the the trusted. Uh, certificate system and it's all based on uh, well okay it, there's a quote that I, I, I found through the Electronic Frontier Foundation EFF and uh, it goes something like this the security of HTTPS is only as strong as the practices of the least trustworthy and competent certificate authority such that the market tends to drive people towards cheapest providers and therefore, with reduced cost, usually you increase the likelihood that the certificate authorities themselves will be hacked. Of course, if people get their hands on, like hackers get their hands on their private the private keys, they can generate their own uh, certificates and they can start impersonating servers. Or, you know, it, it can all go wrong uh, if that happens. Now, there is a link on the show notes actually about how someone uh, was able to hack uh, someone else's uh, SSL connection. Uh, at a local Wi-Fi hotspot, a coffee shop, let's say. It makes a bunch of assumptions of like, you know, you can impersonate a router, the router has, your router has a stronger signal than the coffee shop's router and the server doesn't in completely encrypt all of the traffic. Like there's a few pages that aren't encrypted. So, you know, it's, there's a bunch of assumptions, but essentially it can be done and has been done with a lot of caveats. Even if you don't have the actual keys, this is actually sniffing and cracking it right there, you know, with no other information other than what they can sniff over the Wi-Fi. But bottom line is, it's difficult and there's a bunch of caveats and it works in a very limited subset of situations. Problem I've got though is that, you know, SSL is still not completely perfect. It's it's the best, but it's the best we've, well, it's one of the best that we've got. So the idea is that if you've got a site and you're storing any kind of data at all, logins, passwords, even if it's just that, you, know, you should really have SSL. And that's one of the things that I looked into and I'm currently updating the website and, and so on and so forth. So the, uh, the logins, for example, on hold, and that's one of the things that I'm considering uh, implementing uh, in future as a result of uh, some of the research for this actually, for this episode. So I think it matters because I mean, if people are going to give me their name and their and, and a password, I have no idea if the password they're using is unique. So I have to try and protect that information. And that means I need to make sure that it's not sniffed between their computer and, and the server. 
that I operate. And of course, I need to make sure that the server that I'm operating has sufficient security measures in place and isn't an open book. All the passwords themselves are encrypted, but you know you can still break that if you if you can hack in and get all of the uh, all of the hashes. You can always run them through because the thing is, yeah. Have you seen these uh, articles about how to build a uh, a hacking machine that's, that runs uh, software with parallel graphics uh, cards that crunches through all of the combinations to break the encryption and takes days, weeks, whatever. But if they get their hands on the uh, even on the um, the hashed uh, passwords, they can still they can still eventually hack them through brute force. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I have not. Well, if they hack into the server and they actually get those passwords, they can, given the right hardware and enough time and patience, um, just using lots and lots of graphics cards all all stacked together. I mean, it's highly hacked, but you know that we call them hackers. Uh, that it is actually possible. That's why, you know, when they hack into a server, even though the passwords are encrypted, you know, they can still decrypt them because it, the decryption only works in the one direction. So if you run through enough possibilities, eventually you'll come out with something that isn't gibberish. As goes the theory anyway. It's just you've got to try every single possibility. And you can't go in through the front door and do it because they rate limit it. So they say, well, you can only have X number of requests to for a login attempt or whatever to test your attempts at the password. So going in through the front door is no good. But if you can hack the server and extract the data and run it on your own box, and you can run through all the possibilities, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of possibilities, just sit there and, well, I was going to say grab a cup of coffee, but <laughs> you might be there for months. But, you know. So protecting your server side is very important as well. So it's not just the SSL which protects the data transaction, it's protecting the server on the other end. And that comes back to trust. You know, hubba, 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 who do you trust? I wonder well, if I think gets that one, but anyway. Sorry. Yeah, I get it. I get oh, it. Oh, yay. <laughs> is, uh, I think the question, the question is not should we apply SSL to anything that has you know, logins and passwords, I think that's that's pretty obvious. I think the topic that was being discussed on that particular show and what I think is m most relevant as we go forward is should SSL be applied to everything, right? Read-only pages and stuff like that. Is, wasn't that yeah. something that, was, that, brought, uh, that came up? Yeah, the issue is that if you have... So if you've got a site that has a single page that has data that needs to be protected in transit. It would then make sense to simply force HTTPS on every single page. So every, everything on that site, just, just push it across to HTTPS and be done with it. So everything is protected. Right. Because some, some sites were doing a, well, I only have to do protect this one, this one page. So it'll have a special URL, special handling, special rules. The rest of the site will be served up normally. Well, the, the argument is, well, no, you should do the lot, one in, all in. And that protects against uh, a myriad of, of, of issues. But honestly, from a privacy point of view, uh, yes, it also does lock out a bunch of other things, like you said, advertising and so on. But you know, from, a, from a privacy perspective, you can protect against the advertising and stuff through different means, through your browser directly, which we'll get to. But I don't know. I think that um, I, the reason that I bring it up is that if you're ever doing a putting secure data, well, sorry, hang on. If you're putting data out into a, onto a website, signing up for something and it's not SSL and you're putting in your, your name, your date of birth, anything like that, you know, you really should have 
it really should be HTTPS. There should be a nice little lock certificate and all that stuff. And you and I, we know where to look for that stuff. The average person doesn't. But then again, I guess I'm betting that people that are listening to this show know what to look for. So, I don't know. I think that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty safe bet too. But, you know, tell your friends and your family. Anyway, all right. Um, I think we should probably keep moving. Yeah. So, before we go in a, in a different direction, I just yeah. remembered that the other company I had mentioned was Amazon. Yes. And Amazon is, I mean, their their whole use of data is very different, but at the same time, not so different, right? So they they know a heck of a lot about you. And they, I think, so as irrational as it might be, I am, I am right now today more okay with Amazon knowing the stuff that I've bought and the videos that I've watched and whatever, whatever else I've done with Amazon services. I don't know why. I, I just, I feel like the value that I extract from them knowing more about me is, is, is higher than with something like Facebook. I feel like when I've purchased certain items and they say, here are some other things you might like, there have been times where I've looked at it and been like, yeah, that I do want one of those actually. And that kind of a transaction, that kind of a mental jump for me is easier to make. If I watch videos and they say, oh, you watched, you know, Apocalypse Now, you might like this. I'm like, yeah, it's actually, that is something I'm curious about. Something about the way that Amazon brings recommendations to me and and keeps a full record of all of the things that I've done within the Amazon ecosystem. Again, I'll reiterate, I know it's irrational, but something about that feels better to me. I I can't put my finger on why. Maybe it's because I can't recall a time where Amazon came under fire for using data differently or in an unexpected way or anything like that. And there could have been instances. They're just, I don't know what they are. But I think the other thing is that I feel like Amazon has all this data and they want to keep it. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's for them. I feel like it's not in their best interests to sell that data because the more they have, the more they can buffer their own uh, business against competitors. So I, again, I don't know why I feel this way. It's just one of those things where the convenience of Prime, the the availability of certain products, the the recommendations seem very relevant to my interests, although... There's a hell of a lot of kid videos and diapers and crap that I don't need to see every time I log in. <laughs> you know, it just it's a different kind of system. I know they're gathering mountains of data about me, but I feel very different about that than I do about something like Facebook. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Facebook, uh, I wonder if the ads on Facebook, if they actually were better or more relevant, that relevant. might feel differently. I don't know, but I, 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 to me, I just, I just hate Facebook. <laughs> That's just me. I, 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 I can't actually rationalize my reason for hating Facebook much the same way that it's hard for you to rationalize why you trust Amazon more than you would say Google. But I guess the bottom line is that you just you get more value from Amazon, and perhaps it's the same thing with Apple with their suggestions because they do the same kind of thing, right? They, they know what you've bought and presumably what you've watched watched 
and uh, yeah, they're the genius suggestions. Are the um, yeah, it is, isn't it? iTunes uh, geniuses, iTunes not my iTunes, my iTunes well, genius, isn't it? it? Was introduced a few years ago. I don't. I turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, genius recommendations and stuff like that. You know, so they suggest things you might like as well. But I don't know. I guess one of the things though, it comes up time and again, whenever whenever I talk to someone about privacy, is that what is the worst that could happen? It's like, well, is it really relevant to anyone that I watched Home Alone two or Home Alone three? Even worse, potentially. No, the third one was terrible. Anyway. Is it is it really useful information to someone, to anyone? And I guess I think to myself, well, not so much that, but things like my name, my date of birth, my home address, that sort of thing is perhaps more of an issue potentially. And it's not so much that even, it's also, okay, right now, Amazon has that data. Or let's say that you're really... Um, you're really a big fan of a certain company that's producing something you really want to use, like a, a mail client or a, or a to-do app, to-do list app. That's a good one. I don't know. And it's got a web component that requires, for some reason, your home address and your name and date of birth. Who knows? And, um, and then they get bought out or they go out of business or the government serves them uh, a subpoena for information or you know they've signed up to, to, to PRISM or to... God knows what, you know, and that data that you thought was was just with them and you trusted them with it and went to them, suddenly now someone else has got it. And sometimes these things go up to the highest bidder and what happens with the information after that, who knows? So I guess the problem I've got is that previously when you have a paper copy of something, the paper copy says, um, here's my name, my date of birth, my home address. And that was filed in a cabinet somewhere that you physically had to access the physical security. It was difficult to copy because you needed a photocopier, I guess, or you had to write it down by hand. So that made it far more difficult to steal. You had to do the whole Mission Impossible thing, you know, with the uh, the fake face and the, and the accent and pull the security guard's badge and make a fake copy and get in and break in and, you know start doing the music and um you know but that's what that's a sign of okay maybe they didn't have to go that far but it's that sort of thing right whereas these days once it's online replicating it digitally is easy and uh once that information is is out there and 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 it's released then it's up for anyone that wants to pay for it in a lot of cases some companies may pay it well may sell it like you say amazon's not going to sell it because they really, really have no benefit in selling it and that's that's a good thing i think but someone like Google, that's that's their business. So yeah, they're going to sell it. Yeah, they're going to sell you, because that's their business. So, it I guess it's levels of paranoia, isn't it? <laughs> how, how paranoid do you want to be? Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing you brought up Apple. And in the past, I would say one to two years, they've taken a very user centric, privacy heavy stance where you know Apple Pay has been introduced and that is really to obfuscate your purchases and keep transactions as secure as possible. There's been a lot of credit card breaches and things like that in the past 1 to 2 years. Apple has gone on record with, you know, PR releases and things like that saying what they do, what they don't do, how this, you know, this focus is for the user and protecting people. 
and as much as they know about you know us as users this is something that they have made very public i think partially because of the sensitivity of these things happening certainly mm-hmm. yeah it's a great marketing message and if they are going to stick to it that to me carries a lot of weight that makes me feel like okay well i can put at least a little bit more trust in these services and these products because this is something that i care even nominally about now like you said things change data gets sold to the highest bidder and suddenly the once great feeling you had about a company can go away but the fact of the matter is if you use a credit card that the the data that you share with that credit card company or the issuing bank is sold time and time and time again and that's a transaction that you just have to be okay with if you're using a credit card i mean half the reason you get voluminous amounts of junk mail <laughs> is because your your bank and your credit card and your isp and your mortgage company everybody sells your information to everybody else it's just it just happens that's that's how junk mail is born and it's it's crazy how rampant it is but you know we're talking a lot about things that happen online and protecting digital assets and stuff like that but this has been happening for so long just in the normal sphere of culture that i think it's different. It feels different because it's happening online. And we, as you said earlier in the show, we went from a point 20 years ago of, I don't know about this buying things online thing to all, all of this information being online. And now we're kind of pulling back like, Hey, wait a second. Like maybe this wasn't such a terrific idea. You know, maybe we shouldn't have put all this out there, but it's almost too late because your information, your home address, your, all that stuff is on paper, but it's not, protected behind lock and key anymore it's just it's it's shared for for profit every single day that's it yeah that junk mail is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's depressing so, it's so bad so bad yeah you know sometimes yeah. um my wife says um hey we didn't get a bill we got junk mail and i'm like oh, I t- sometimes i wish it was a bill but anyway um not that often anyway so i want to tell you a story about um, a job hunting experience that I had that freaked me out. And this is sort of freaked me out on a level that I haven't been freaked out uh, about privacy for a while. And it was just the one company and I will not say who it was. I was applying for a job and they had a secure website and the secure website said, in order to apply for this job, you must provide the following. They asked for a scanned, full-color scanned copy, high-resolution scanned copy of my driver's license, of my birth certificate. And it kind of occurred to me when I'm doing this, I'm like, I really need a job right now. Because I was, you know, in a bad situation from an employment point of view at that point, And I, I needed a job. So I called them up and I said... Um, can I supply you a hard copy? Can I drop off a hard copy to you? I'm not comfortable, A, transmitting this across, information across the internet and B, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with you storing it in soft copy. And their response was, was twofold. First of all, she sounded like no one had ever asked this question before. And, of course. Yeah, of course. Like, oh, really? It's, it's a big deal? Well, actually, kind of was. 
So anyway, um, a first response was, well, you're welcome to drop in a scanned copy if you want. I mean, you're welcome to drop in a hard copy if you want, but we'll just scan it in ourselves anyway. And I'm like, okay, so I've eliminated the, uh, the in-transit problem, but I haven't eliminated the storage of that information digitally problem. And I then said, oh, oh, okay, is there, a, is there any way that if I'm successful for the, app, for the, for the role, then I can give that to you? Because I mean, if I'm unsuccessful, what are you going to do? Keep it on file? What's your policy? Are you going to delete it? Um, why do you need it? And she said, well, it's the policy that, you know, anyone that applies for this, we need to confirm your country of birth and your current um, uh, status within the country. Like they're trying to basically cut back on um, what are they called? Uh, illegal, uh, illegal aliens or something. I've, that's the thing, you know, they call them in North America. People are not legally allowed to work uh, in the country because they're not an appropriate visa or, right. or, or whatever trying to crank down on that. And of course, right. because their human resources department was spread over multiple locations, having a single hard copy wouldn't cut it because they were farming out their work to multiple locations. So not only was it a problem once it was in soft copy, but that soft copy was then distributed amongst different sites. So it was a really a big question of how much I trusted that company. And ultimately, as much as it pained me to do so, and as much as it went against everything, that I thought was reasonable and sensible, I ended up doing it because I needed the job. But that, to me, illustrated how far we've come and how really dangerous, you know, some of this really is. Because if they have their server hacked, someone can now impersonate me. They have everything that they need right there to just take over my identity. You know, the two two most precious pieces of information. So... Yeah, and as we've seen repeatedly in in recent memory, servers are not as secure as companies would have you think. And no. their their entire infrastructure is not as secure because there's been all kinds of breaches, there's been memos that have been leaked. You know, the two that come to mind are the Target, the Target one here, I guess yes. that was about a year ago, mm-hmm. and the Home Depot one. And yep. there were there were articles. I remember reading an article on Ars Technica about the person who was in charge of security for Home Depot, and it was laughable that 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 guy was the person who was supposed to be securing everything, and it was it was calling it an afterthought would be an overstatement, you know? Yeah. And these you trust these companies, you trust that well they have all this data, they have to be protecting it because you would think it would be crazy not to, they'd be so liable if they didn't, but they're not. So many of them aren't, or if they are, they're not doing it in the right ways. And they're basically, it's kind of a, you know, don't worry about it until something bad happens. And then we'll apologize and offer everybody a year of credit monitoring. And that is the most offensive thing I can think of, that our lives and livelihoods are constantly put at risk for no good reason, because it's cheaper to offer a year of credit monitoring and a letter of apology than it is to just secure the data correctly. Yeah, exactly. Another one that comes to mind recently was the uh, the Sony hack, which had a lot right. of personal uh, information for employees uh, that was leaked out onto um, you know onto the internet. It's just it's crazy. And what bugs me is that people have become so comfortable with the convenience that they are, and they are not taking the security aspects of it 
seriously enough. And this is why I thought it was worth adding into this privacy discussion is that I think people have reached that point now where they're beginning to realize, oh dear, this is really not such a smart idea. You know, this is, you know, bad and I can't just trust. And it's about a breach of trust. So, I mean, you give over your driver's license number, your birth certificate to the government because, well, they're the government. Now, whether or not you want to trust the government, that's that's another story, I guess, again. But, you know, seriously, though, assuming you do trust the government uh, more so than you trust a private corporation, at least, I don't know. Um, I don't know. <sighs> Dear me. All right. So, I think we should probably keep moving. <laughs> we've been we've been all over the place today, but it's it's one of those topics that you get flustered thinking about it because even if we had done a big formal outline of all the things we wanted to talk about, it wouldn't it wouldn't cover it all, and we'd still be off on tangents. So. Yeah. Yes, I, right. I agree. Let's let's keep moving. <laughs> okay. So okay, the next the next um, subtopic area I guess I'd, I'd I want to talk about is um, the use of credit cards online specifically. But before I do go down that particular rat hole, <laughs> I'd like to talk about our second sponsor, and uh, that's ManyTrix. Now, ManyTrix they're a great software development company, and their apps do well. You know, you guessed it from their name, ManyTrix. Their apps include Butler, Chemo, uh, Chemo Leech, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, Moom, Usher, Name Mangler, and Witch. Now, there's so much to talk about for each of those apps that I can't do it all at once. So, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about four of them. We'll start off with Moom. Now, I love Moom. It makes it so easy to move any of your windows to whatever positions you want on the screen. Halves, corners, edges, fractions of the screen, whatever you like. And then you can even save and recall your favorite window arrangements. And there's even a special auto arrangement feature when you connect or disconnect from an external display. It's awesome. I use it every day. Name Mangler. Now, let's say you've got a bunch of files that you need to rename quickly, efficiently, and in large numbers. Well, Name Mangler can extract things like the metadata from the files and use that to rename them. It's got search and replace, obviously, but you can also create staged renaming sequences. And if you mess it up, you just go back to when you started and have another go. Which... And you should think about which is a supercharger for your command tab app switcher. Now, which is great for and is very popular with X Windows users like myself, although that's becoming more of a fading memory with every week. Anyway, uh, if you've got three or four documents open at once in any one app, then which is beautifully simple pop-up lets you pick exactly which one you're looking for very quickly. It's great. Usher. Well, it can access any video stored on iTunes, Aperture, iPhoto, or any connected hard drives on your Mac allowing you to easily group, sort, tag, and organize them in the one application. If you install Perian or Flip for Mac, there's no need to convert anything to an iTunes format just so you can watch it. So if you've got a video collection in different formats scattered across different programs and drives, then Usher can help you straighten it all out. Now, that's just four of their great apps. There's still five more of them you can check out on their site. And all of them have free trials. You can download them from ManyTricks, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic and try them out before you buy them. They're available to buy from those their respective pages on the site or through the Mac App Store. However, if you visit that specific URL, and yes, they've extended this offer again, you can take advantage of a special discount off of their very helpful apps exclusively for pragmatic listeners. Simply use the code pragmatic25. That's pragmatic the word and two five the numbers in the discount code box in the shopping cart and you'll receive 25% off everything in that. So the offer is only available to pragmatic listeners for a limited time. So 
Take advantage of it while you can if you haven't already. Thank you once again to Manytrix for their continued support of Pragmatic. Okay, credit cards online. <sighs> the thing is, when I was when I was younger, I it, this was unconscionable to me that I would ever put credit card information online, and yet I'm I've done it. And the convenience is what the attract is the attraction. It's so convenient to just go to Apple or Amazon or eBay, you know, and buy something and then have it show up on your doorstep either the next day, the next few days or next week or in my case in Australia, the next month sometimes because we're in a little island. Well, it's actually not that little, but it's an island anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, you, you choose the ultra cheap, ultra slow um, pigeon delivery service, which sometimes gets lost as it crosses the Pacific. So, you know, anyway... <sighs> I choose to live here. We have, nice, <laughs> we, have, we have beautiful beaches. That's what I keep telling them. Oh, yeah. Myself. I know. Yeah, that'd be lovely. But anyway. Okay. Right. Good. Focus. So, um, right. I always am wary of sites with homegrown looking checkouts. You know, I, I look for the sites that have got um, the actual like, shop, bigger shops, uh, big, bigger sites, things like Shopify's, even though they're sort of, you know, because you know Shopify, I've, I've got all of the uh, the security um uh, because each of the companies that host this information have to split the data between servers and it's a bunch of other regulations that they have to follow and everything. And you know that you get to know some of the brands behind it, but there's definitely a trust aspect to it. But people like Apple and Amazon have got this, you know, and Barnes and Noble is like, they all, all, all examples of places that have got all of that well and truly, you know, taken care of. But even so, Every time you transmit that information, even across SSL, there's always that possibility. No matter how remote that you can have your credit card details stolen or if someone hacks their servers, they could get that information as well. Although it's unlikely, of course, if they follow all of the regulations and that require separate servers, technically then if they hack one server, they only get half the information and that's not enough. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind it. I don't want to go into that in too much detail, but still. The way I think you can get around that, you can limit the damage is by not using a credit card online. But if you still want to be able to buy things online, there is a one way around it. And that is some, ugh, there's an episode of Dilbert that referred to it as an inferior form of cash. And that's a, a gift card. But the thing is, some sites will offer independently purchased gift cards. Because of course, it's gift cards that you buy online with a credit card, which <laughs> defeats the purpose, of course. You need to be able to buy them uh, independent of being online. In other words, you have to go to a shopping mall, shopping center, you know, wherever, 7-Eleven, I guess, and buy the gift card from there. And if you're really, really, really paranoid and you don't want to use your bank card so they can't trace your bank card transaction, then pay with cash and it'll be more or less untraceable. But the point is that, uh, again, depending on your level of paranoia, just I'm, I'm an ideas guy. I'm not necessarily advocating it, but you can if you want to. You have the power. So there are a few places that do this where you can have a buy a gift card uh, in, a re in the real world that you can use to buy fully digital products without a physical delivery, perhaps even if you want to go down that road. So uh, fully digital products like music or, uh, or movies or apps. Yeah, so examples for that are ebooks is a good example too. So uh, a big, big name examples, Apple, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Those are the big three that I, I could think of. Can you think of any others? No, that's Apple and Amazon are probably where I buy most of everything. <laughs> so 
So yeah. the, they, they probably cover a lot. Barnes & Noble is another big one. I'm sure there's a half dozen I could rattle off if I thought about it for 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I picked those because those are the cards that you can buy that are readily available in uh, in shops. I mean, okay, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, not so much here, but definitely Apple. You can't walk into a corner store down here without seeing an Apple gift card uh, on the shelf. So, you know, you can walk into a store, buy them with cash, bring them home, punch in a number into an Apple account, in a, into your Apple ID. And, and if you create it with, you know, quote unquote, f- fake or protected, if you want to think of it that way, information about yourself, you can theoretically still have that experience that you would have um, anonymously and you can still download apps and everything and charge it all to a gift card that's all been bought that way. If you are really, really concerned about your privacy, that is an option. But, you know, if you're concerned about a physical address, you're stuck. You know, if you want to buy things from Amazon that get shipped to you, well, if you want them shipped to you, you've got to have a physical address to ship it to. So there are other ways around that. Of course, you can always ship it to a friend or a family member or, or a business address and then pick it up from there, I suppose. But, you know, that starts to get to be more painful. And if you're going to do that, then if there's an option for shopping in a bricks and mortar store, then shop on a bricks and mortar store and buy it that way. Why are you even considering it? So I guess I guess that's the point of what this, this privacy discussion is. It's an online thing. So obviously, go offline if you want to not get your information taken online. Because that's kind of obvious, isn't it? So you can go and live in a cave if you want to. That's that's your choice. It might be a bit cold and damp, but still. Uh, right. So I that's, don't have too much. Mm, sorry. That's an interesting point, though. I just want to say, like, going offline is almost not an option if you want to be a part of society. You know, like there are there are plenty of people who aren't really online, and you know, just saying. Oh, you have to be online on one level sounds a little asinine. Like, no, you really don't. You can live your entire life offline, but there's so much interaction social or otherwise that occurs on the internet among totally normal everyday people, just emailing your parents, emailing your grandparents, uh, you know, sending stuff to friends back and forth, things that have become so standard. It's increasingly hard to just step back entirely. Even if you say, I'm not going to buy things online. I'm only going to buy things in person. I'm going to buy things in cash. There, there's steps you can take, but it's so hard to detach and remain connected to the the everyday people in your life. Not even the people that are miles away. Just people, you know, in in the same town as you. It's it's just a cultural difference now than you know from a decade or two ago. Yeah, that's it's a good point. It's. It's become emails become ubiquitous. It's like everyone who seems to have an email address, and the reason is that you know you you buy an iPhone, you know you get an email address when you create an Apple ID, right? You get create a Google account for free, you get an email address. So everyone seems to have an email address. So to not have one seems very very unusual, and certainly. Pretty much everyone that I know, with the exception of my mother, <laughs> just realize that my mom doesn't have any. <laughs> my mom doesn't have internet at her house. She doesn't have an email address. She doesn't have a computer. She doesn't even have an iPad or any computing device whatsoever. That sounds so, like bliss. <laughs> well, I sometimes say to her, "Oh, did you see the photos we put on Facebook?" Oh, hey, never mind that. No, right. you didn't. Of course, you didn't. What am I thinking? 
Um, anyway, and every now and then we sort of say, you should get yourself an iPad or we should get you an iPad. And we, my sister and I, we, we almost did. We almost bought her an iPad and she's like, if you bought me an iPad, I would refuse to use it. And I'm like, but she'd be giving it to you. But my mum is the sort of um, beautiful person who says, well, you know what? <laughs> you can't make me. So it's like, okay, fine. Be that way. It's all good. I guess it's one less iPad that I have to maintain. Think of it that way. Yeah, look at it that way, yeah. <laughs> God, I've got my wife's um, iPhone, my kids' iPads. It's like, and I've got enough stuff to maintain in my IT personal life. So anyway, but yeah, so um, it's very hard. You're right to go off the grid, especially in Western culture these days. Especially for anyone, I think, under the age of about, I don't know, fifty. I would say it's it's just so hard. Anyway. I don't mean to be ageist when I say that. I just I I was trying to think of a good age off the top of my head and maybe that's hard to put a number on, but you know. Okay. I don't have too much else to say about credit cards to be perfectly honest, but you know, I just wanted to mention that. So let's talk a little bit about browsers and um a few other little bits and bobs before we wrap it up. But uh some of the things you can do is there's um Chrome has this thing called incognito mode and Safari has this thing called private browsing. And I thought it might just be interesting just to quickly talk about what that does and what that doesn't do. So I guess um, in terms of additional protection, it's it's more about protecting your the data on your side, on your own computer, more than more so, I think, than anything else. You still type, If you're in incognito mode and you type in a search into Google, Google's still going to have a record of it, you know, but... If you've got a browsing history, that browsing history won't be maintained on your computer. Any cookies that have been transferred, you know, during your web sessions that ordinarily would would stick around potentially on your hard drive for a bit longer to track where you go next, well, they'll they'll be expunged at the end of your session. Uh, of course, you can do that yourself manually if you want to. There's settings in your in your browser to turn that off. You can turn off your cookies and so on and so forth, and say don't keep track of my history but the idea I think of incognito on private mode is that it's a one click button uh, that allows you to <laughs> I just realized a one click button as opposed to what John a two click button or a three click button <sighs> it's one button that you can press to take care of it all I suppose but you can go further than that if you want to and one of the things that I've come across is HTTPS everywhere and its friend SSL everywhere have you come across these ones? I think I've heard of them, but I've never really looked into it. Yeah, I started looking into it uh, a few weeks ago, actually. And uh, it's it's their extensions. Well, HTTPS Everywhere is an extension for Firefox, Chrome, and Android. And it for- forces HTTPS and uh, SSL Everywhere is an option that does the same for Safari users. There's a few other different ones out there, but those are the, the two that I was looking at. And uh, it forces HTTPS on every website where whenever it is a possibility. So rather than if the website says default to HTTP, but there's an HTTPS option, then the browser will force the HTTPS option. So it forces that encryption, even if the site doesn't. Uh, you can also, as I said, set your cookies to expire. Um, whenever you exit the browser, you can turn off referral links. You can turn off, you can install an ad blocker. That's another one. Uh, I also came across an interesting site. I haven't used it, but it's called Disconnect Me. And... It kind of looks interesting. There's a there's a free version of it and it's a $5 a month version. It says it can give you a truly anonymous search, 
visualize tracking information and so on. I don't know. Might be interesting just to investigate further. It's not necessarily a recommendation, but you know, there are other things that you can do. But honestly, the simple things with passwords and stuff as well. I know it's sort of a tangent on browsers, but when you're signing up for something on the web, just use a different password for every site you sign up to. That way, if one gets hacked, your password's not going to get affected and your other logins won't be affected as well. And using a password management tool that can generate and remember all the unique passwords is very useful for this. And I use one password. Um, I realize, again, that's a bit of a tangent, but it's still related, securing your securing what you're doing and keeping it private. You, you know, Having one password for everything is insane. I'm assuming you use a password management tool, Seth. Oh, yeah. I've been using 1Password for years. I swear by it. And I yeah. tell everybody I can about it. <laughs> yeah, same here. And I've tried to get my wife to use it. And she says, I don't know what the pop-up means. So I just hit, keep hitting cancel. And that's the sound of my head banging against the desk. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I finally got my wife using it. And she's she's on board now. She gets it. And that yeah. just, uh, it sounds small, but it helps me sleep better. Yeah, exactly right. Because uh, my wife's Facebook got hacked um, a while ago. Um, which was uh, an unpleasant, but brief but unpleasant experience. So yeah, and I think she's getting better, but no, I still need to do more training, <laughs> I think, <laughs> on the one password site. So anyway, uh, did you have anything to add on uh, on things you can do with browsers to try and improve your privacy? Um, yeah, a service that I like to use, especially when I'm traveling, is Cloak. Um, it's a it's a VPN service that you just pay a couple of bucks a month and Everything is basically routed through, you know, private server that they maintain. And again, you're trusting them with that data, but I I feel like it's a good trade-off if you're on public Wi-Fi or in an airport or traveling or wherever. Uh, it's very, very fast. And I've whenever I sign up for a service like this, I try to dig as much as possible and see what they're all about. And I, I get a pretty good feeling from those guys. It's a very small company. They seem very serious about providing a good service. So, you know, that's one that I currently use and, and trust and, and also recommend to people. It's very inexpensive if it's something that you're interested in. Cool. And just, just for the for listeners that don't know about the why VPN matters is that if you... What well, a VPN does is you you dial into a dial in. Gosh, geez, I sound so old fashioned when I say that. You, when you connect to a VPN, hang on a sec while I slap myself. Anyway, when you connect to a VPN and it's an encrypted one, it's essentially a connection between your computer and a server somewhere out there. That data transfer is then essentially you know, is encrypted and no one else can sniff on it locally. And then all your data requests go via that VPN. So wherever that VPN comes out at the other end. So what you're essentially doing is, yeah, you're meeting anyone locally, like you said, on the free Wi-Fi around the place. They can't sniff any of that data because it's encrypted between you and wherever the VPN is. So they can't get at it, which I think is the you know, a very good idea. And it also kills uh, a lot of the um, uh, ads and stuff and things that get inserted over the top on, um, on free Wi-Fi, I think. Yeah, I think so. VPN is traditionally more of a corporate thing for getting yeah. back into your your business network. Yes, but true. I I've seen kind of a small pro proliferation of consumer level VPN services over the past few years, and you know, Cloak is one that has always worked for me. It's very very fast, and that's really it. I mean, you can you get sometimes a 
a speed hit, a performance hit when you do yes. that because you're you're you know you're bouncing your data requests through somewhere else. But it's it's very performant in in my experience. And it's again, if it's the kind of thing that you think about at all, it's worth investigating. You know, our our wireless services, LTE stuff like that is is pretty robust these days and and getting better. But there are times when you just don't have service and you have to use public Wi-Fi and just having that available to you is an extra level of security and, a, you know, a good feeling. Cool. Cool. Good tip. Should All we right. even should we even talk about the Verizon Super Cookie? That is actually what I was hoping you would say because I've got a note here. You mentioned it earlier. So let's let, 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 let's explore your fr- your current frustration and angst with respect to the super cookie what if i just i actually only know bits and pieces about this it sounds like you know more about it than i do so um yeah take it away yeah admittedly i'm not a security researcher and i will probably misspeak at least once in this diatribe but the okay. the general the general notion is that i believe it's AT&T and Verizon but Verizon's is more unpleasant i think they're they're both doing it i don't think i heard of sprint doing it i know t-mobile is not because they've come out and said we don't do this anyway i i use verizon as my carrier so that's why it's relevant to me the the notion is that there are there are cookies that are placed on your wireless traffic that is not done over wi-fi but over the lte or 3g network that even if you have opted out wherever possible uh, through Verizon's services, which I have done, to limit ad tracking and stuff like that, this particular snippet will remain. And even if it is deleted, it can come back. And their position is it's legal and you don't really have to worry about it because nobody is going to use it. But third parties have investigated it and found that other companies are in fact using it and that even if it is deleted, those companies can still access it or replace it or something like that. The bottom line is that there is there is a flag on your wireless traffic if you're using those networks that basically reveals an awful lot about you, your behavior, your location, and your habits. And it's yeah. it's an extremely unsettling thing to learn. And it's the kind of thing where you, you say to yourself, okay, you know, I, I can't I can't switch carriers today because for me in my area, I've had every single carrier and Verizon is the best. The, my service is extremely good here. Extremely good. And I'm very pleased with it. It's fast, it's reliable, it's ubiquitous in my area. But there is a part of me that is severely disturbed by this. And and whether it's just on general principle that this shouldn't be happening, that's that's a part of it. But the other thing is, getting back to what I was saying earlier, the the notion that companies have of, oh, don't worry about it. Nothing bad's going to happen. And that attitude incenses me to no end because even as a a non-security researcher, I have a little bit of insight that says, yeah, something bad could easily, easily happen as a result of this. And whether you're selling it or it gets misappropriated in some other way, bad things can happen. So don't 
sit there and tell me, don't worry about it and it's fine. Like, it's just, I, we're, we're way past the point of just saying, oh, all right, well, no big deal then, you know, and, and I really hope it's the kind of thing that gets a lot more attention. It's getting a lot of attention. I hope it's the kind of thing that gets a lot more attention and that it continues to really keep this dialogue open of what we are accepting of and what we are allowing these companies to do with our, with our data and with, you know, our identities to some degree. I'll tell you one thing that I do think is wonderful um, about Apple is, and there are lots of things to love about Apple, of course, but, you know, they're not perfect and they do do things wrong from time to time. But this whole push that they've got about privacy, if you want to be the cynic and say, well, yeah, oh, it's just a marketing, you know, it's a marketing thing because, you know, it's a, it, it, they don't really mean it or whatever else. But you know what? If you take it, if you take them at their word and people say, well, I feel safer with an iPhone because of all the, the the malware that seems to get on Android versus that gets on an iPhone. And the fact that Apple Pay and Touch ID is all that information is all stored in a secure chip and you can't get the data out. It's a one-way transaction. Data goes in, it never gets out. You know, it's like, well, okay. So that's wonderful. If that becomes a strong differentiator, how long before that momentum starts to, I say infect, but I mean it in a good way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it starts to be a big influencer and all of the other companies that are out there start to realize we can't keep being so, it's almost patronizing, isn't it? It's like, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. you shouldn't be worried. It's like, well, actually, we are worried. Yes, it is a problem and no, we don't trust you and I'm going to now vote with my feet because I have an alternative and these people over here care about my privacy so I'm gone, you know? Yeah. And I think we're starting to see the beginning of that but it hasn't gained enough momentum yet and this whole discussion about privacy, the more I think about it, the more I think to myself that it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue and people are going to start demanding it. It's only a matter of time and the more breaches that we have, the more um, exposure that there is, more information that people are trying to get out of us, the bigger a problem it's going to become and the more visibility it's going to get. So, I don't know. I th- I'm not sure if, if turning point is the right expression, but certainly there have been enough incidents that it's starting to to really change public opinion. So, Yeah, we're finally going to get chip and pin here after... 15 years of people saying don't worry about it yeah, so things yeah. are changing yeah yeah i'm i'm really happy that america isn't finally going to embrace chip and pin um it's been when, when i was when i lived over there it was always very odd to me that i would hand over my credit card um to yeah anyone. it is <laughs> it's just weird uh but you know you kind of get used to because it it's just that's just the way it was done and um yeah, it's it's great to see, and you know, honestly, it's going to make it a lot easier, for, especially for people traveling around the world, but also for you know everyone in the US. It's just it's just better, and uh, now with Apple Pay over the top of that, like I sort of I talked about this in the last episode, it's yeah, it really is um, the next step whereby uh, the transaction is sort of is more in control for the individual, and it's more difficult to extract, and it's going to really cripple. Um, the vast majority of credit card fraud. And I mean, we're talking about what, 200, oh, hang on, it's 200 billion is the overall loss in the US 
uh, for merchants. I think on an individual level, it's about $5 billion US a year. Of That's individuals. So you add up everyone's individual losses. That's losses that cannot be recovered. So every individual's added all up, $5 billion of credit card fraud every year. So chip and pin is going to decimate that and Apple Pay will decimate it even further or systems like Apple Pay. So definitely steps in the right direction. All right, there's another thing I just want to quickly talk about um, and that is uh, getting back to uh, Nick Radcliffe's uh, feedback and that's specifically about eBooks. And this is how this all started is that the problem is that if you want to be able to, you know, get music and do it anonymously or ebooks and get them anonymously the ability to sideload those books not via an app store is a, is a handy feature and some devices allow it and some don't but in any case um, it's that the, and of course a lack of DRM is also very helpful if you're going to do that so um, there's a there's an interesting book and article on um, a life hacker there's lots of good stuff on life hack and um, there's a link to it in the show notes for people that feel that they're in too deep um, with a di- their digital footprint, if you want to call it that, there's a book that was written by a professional skip tracer and their their job is, of course, is to you know, track people down. And um, anyway, it's called Disappear, Erase Your Digital Footprint. And it's, it, I haven't read it, but I've read excerpts from it and it looks really, really good. And the idea is that this the person that wrote this had 20 years of experience tracking people down and they decided that they should write a book about how you can actually make it hard for people like them to find you. So some of the interesting points for the, those people that, are, that feel like they're in too deep and they want to back out a little bit, um, and some of these are probably going to be obvious, but I'll just quickly mention them anyway. Um, minimize social interactions on social networks. So stop posting things like don't include your location. Don't tell people exactly what you're doing. You know, gradually reduce the amount of interactions. Don't do it suddenly. That looks, you know, obvious. Just do it gradually and then ease out of it. Um, you can create misinformation in all of your profiles online. So, you know, rather you know, change the spelling of your last name, change your date of birth. If you put your actual one in, change your address. It's a couple of numbers here and there and so on and so forth and then and that will then of course you know throw people off if they're trying to find you um yeah stop using credit cards debit cards just move to cash i was going to say stop using plastic but in australia we have plastic money so that's not going to help but anyway (laughs) you you know what i mean right stop using the credit cards stop using the debit cards because it's a lot harder to track you if you're just using cash and if you really 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 want to go further you can say well i'm going to set up a business entity to handle moving all my money around so they can pay bills on an apartment they can pay electricity bills whatever else utilities and so on and uh and technically it doesn't your name is is a further set layer or two removed so anyway that's pretty intense though i don't know if people really want to go to that level but it, it still looks interesting for those people that want to get away from from being too exposed online. I think that it's 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 interesting. I personally am probably not going to do that, but you never know. Maybe maybe you're considering it. So, I don't know. So, I guess if I had to wrap this up, um, and I know you're right, we have been a bit all over the place. So, it hasn't been a, a typically... Uh, it hasn't been a typical pragmatic episode in that sense. But still, I guess people have been saying for years not to put so much information about yourself online. This is not a new thing, but maybe only recently are people starting to take it more seriously because 
a lot of that trust that's been building is now being broken with all these server-side hacks and as I said before, being out there, mass dumping of encrypt what people thought were encrypted passwords and personal information and the Sony hack and Target and all these things are happening and starting to erode that trust. There is really no encryption method that can't be hacked eventually. It's not possible. Uh, there is always going to be a method to, to break encryption. Nothing is perfect. And, you know, it's just a matter of... It's a cat and mouse game. So you move the piece of... Uh, you move the, the goalposts, you set them higher and the technology catches up to let hackers hack it and then you got to keep moving it up and moving it up and it's you're never quite, you're never out of the game. you always got to keep getting better encryption and better technologies for doing this stuff. But if you want to play online and take advantage of the internet and what it's got to offer, you can still minimize your risks of your private data becoming exposed. But the key point is you can never fully eliminate it. You can't. Eventually, someone who is truly determined can find you. It's just how hard are they prepared to work? Tracing back your um, your IP address to an ISP, um, hacking into the ISP to find out your home address or, or God knows what they would do. You can never truly, absolutely, completely get away from it if you're going to partake in it. Eventually, someone can find you. It's just a matter of how far you're prepared to go how paranoid you feel and how much trouble you want to go to <laughs> to avoid, I suppose, that risk. What do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, that's about all you can say on that. Cool. Well, before we do go, though, there is something uh, of that's, that you've been working on that I do want to talk about. I know it's not; it has nothing to do with privacy, uh, but it is cool and it's an app. Actually, it's called, an app called Stringer. You want yep. to spend a couple minutes just talking about that? Sure. Um, Stringer is an app for shuffling your music. It's something. It's our first app at Derby that we released last uh, November in the fall. So a bunch of it, you guys got together and started a, a, a little company on the side because I know that you're CIO of Nickelfish, but um, you sort of started this Derby thing to specifically work on apps that you guys wanted to write. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate. We've had ideas for years that we wanted to uh, to build ourselves, but Nickelfish is a client services business and it's always hard to to allocate the time to that stuff. So we sure. found ourselves in a position to do that, uh, I guess, at the beginning of last year. Um, and we did. And it's been an interesting, an interesting journey. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of hard work, a different kind of hard work, but it's been extremely rewarding. And so Stringer was just the first idea that we wanted to kind of kick off. We we needed some place to start and the team is very small. So we needed to to build something that we could to you know get out without taking too much time. So as I started to say it's it's a pretty basic concept. If you have local music on your iPhone or you're using iTunes Match, what the app will do is it'll it'll look at it and it'll shuffle all that stuff. And the trick is that when you use the regular music app, if you shuffle, as you go through songs, if you hear something that you like, you want to hear more from that artist or from that album, you have to stop the shuffle and kind of step outside and go listen to more of it and then come back and reshuffle and do all that. Well, the, the thing about Stringer is you can, where you are in your shuffle, kind of step over to the side and throw some songs in, you know, right after that. 
So you can hear more from that album or go the other way and hear more from that artist from their other albums that appear in your collection and continue on. So it's like a, it's a customizable shuffle. There's some other stuff that's built into it. You can import your iTunes playlists. Um, you can save strings if you've kind of tailored a string to your liking. If you have, you know, all this artist one albums and, and it's only the songs you like, you can, you can save stuff within the app like that. It does a few other things. It's the kind of thing that now so many people use streaming services like RDO and Spotify. And that's, that's cool. I mean, you know, there's, they offer amazing things. The, the core group of us that had this idea though, we have really big music collections and we listen to a lot of our own music still. And I think there's still a pretty decent number of people who do um, fall into that group. Yeah. And You know, iTunes isn't selling as much music as they once were, but they are still selling a pretty decent amount of it. So if you are someone who does fall into that category and and listens to a collection and likes to shuffle and often thinks, I'd like to hear more of this, then it might be something for you to check out. It's pretty fun. We we think it looks real nice. And uh, there's not too many bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, That's that's always handy. Uh, Yeah, I... I, um... So people should forget shuffle and they should string it. And um, honestly, uh, I play with it. And I know there's just little things like animations, but it's just, it looks very, very cool. <laughs> the stringy effect is very cool. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've played with it. I quite like it. Um, I've actually been going through a phase where I'm listening to a lot of podcasts more than I am listening to music. But uh, still, uh, I have to admit, it is so much better than the built-in shuffle functionality. And uh, as I said, I, I'm... Like you, I, I don't stream very much. I tend to, uh, I have my own music collection, so it, it suits me uh, perfectly. So if you haven't checked it out already, then I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, it is uh, it is free on the App Store, I believe. Yeah, it's free with uh, an in-app purchase to unlock the advanced features. But you can definitely yeah. try it and and figure out if it's for you. You can, you can use it for free to your heart's content uh, just as it is. Cool. Excellent. All righty. Well, um, Thank you for that. And uh, I guess if uh, we might leave it there, then I don't think if there's anything else to talk about on privacy. I mean, we could go on forever about privacy. Yeah, suppose, exactly. But, <laughs> but we got to draw, draw a line somewhere. I so think this was a this was a good jumping off point. I think we touched on a lot of things at a very shallow level and yeah. maybe we'll revisit some of these in the future. But there's there's so much to talk about. We could go on and on. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So if you do want to talk more about this, um, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi and my site at techdistortion.com is where the podcast is hosted uh, along with my writing and some other stuff that I've done. Uh, if you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. That's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode and the podcast is pragmatic. Don't forget about the t-shirts. There is a link in the show notes this time, promise. And uh, grab them while you can. They're not going to be up forever and I'm probably not going to do shirts again. So this is your last chance get in while you can uh you can follow pragmatic show on twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff uh, i'd also really like to thank my uh, guest host uh today seth for coming on and uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you seth uh you can find me on twitter i'm seth clifford there and if you like the things i say <laughs> you can read some stuff i write occasionally on my site at uh sethclifford.me yeah and you had a good one about privacy i think um just yeah yeah it was it was kind of timely uh, in retrospect it's yeah. uh it's yeah it's just comparing and contrasting some different approaches and 
it's really just feelings and not a lot of science but it's just you know stuff on my mind so yeah there it is cool excellent oh and if, if you want to see the if you want to see the work we do i should probably say that too um yes nickelfish nickelfish.com for for the main company and heyderby.com for our products fantastic excellent very good. Excellent. Well, um, a final thank you to both of our sponsors for this episode. Uh, firstly, I'd personally like to thank Hover for sponsoring the show. Hover is a domain registrar that's simple and easy to use with a valet service for your existing domain transfers, making it simply the best way to buy and keep full control of your domain names. Check out Hover at hover.com pragmatic and find out just how easy it is to use. Use the coupon code pragmatic to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stresses away today. I'd also like to thank ManyTricks for sponsoring Pragmatic. If you're looking for some Mac software that can do many tricks, remember specifically visit this URL, ManyTricks, all one word, dot com slash Pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps. And use the uh, discount code Pragmatic25, that's Pragmatic the word, and 25 the numbers for 25% off the total price of your order. Hurry, it's only for a limited time. I know they keep extending it, but <laughs> they won't extend it forever. So get in while you can. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And, of course, uh, thanks again for coming back on, Seth. Thanks, man. It was fun.